Hey everyone, this is Stephanie from The Mission. This week we have another epic giveaway going on. We're giving away the Chili Pad Sleep Systems. So have you ever been too hot, too cold, getting into an epic battle with your spouse? I mean, I know Chad and I do that almost every night right now. I'm pulling on the covers, he's then getting hot, throws the covers on me, I throw them back on him and they end up on the floor. Anyways, it's a whole ordeal. I will spare you all the details. But with the Chili Pad Sleep System, it's been awesome because you put it, it's basically a mattress pad. You put some water in it, and each side has its own remote. So Chad can make his side nice and cool. I can make my side nice and warm, turn it off when we don't want it anymore. But it's a really nice way to get deep sleep and be able to control the temperature to exactly what you want and what you feel comfortable at. It's been game changing for Chad and I. So go to mission.org slash giveaway or click the link in the show notes and enter your email for a chance to win the Chili Pad Sleep Systems. We have a few of them to give away. So chances are good. Good luck. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily. Selected as Best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hi there, and welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. On today's episode, Chad and Ian sit down with Ben Renda, Chief Operating Officer of Google Fi. Ben has a unique background, first from working in the military, then working with the federal government, and now working in the tech giant that is Google. Ben talks about the disconnect between policymakers in the federal government and innovators in Silicon Valley tech companies. He also shares how organizations can reward intelligent risk-taking and gives some insider tips for how to get hired at the company like Google. Stay tuned for more from Ben Renda, Chief Operating Officer of Google Fi. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mission Daily. Today's guest is Mr. Ben Renda. Ben, thanks for taking the time. Glad to be here. And riding shotgun, I guess we could say. Ian, what's up? Hey now, I'm back. <laughs> Good to have you here. Ben, your experience, your background is super interesting. Uh, when we first met, I think it was that happy hour uh, a couple so. of months ago. Yeah. Um, I knew I w- wanted to interview you, wanted to bring you on. So yeah, if we could start back at your origins. That would be uh, pretty fun. So where'd you grow up? So I was actually born in Syracuse, New York. Okay. Um, I come from a pretty blue collar background. Uh, My father's father worked in an ammunition factory in New York back in World uh, World War I. And he came through Ellis Island. I don't think it was legally. I think he kind of slid in the back door, quite frankly. My mom's side is also, she was born in New York, but prior to that, they were from Finland. As soon as my dad finished up his graduate school in Syracuse, uh, he moved us out to sunny Santa Barbara, California. I'm very thankful for that. That was um, a great move. Yeah. So he, uh, uh, so we grew up in Southern California, went to school down there. I uh, got to a point after I graduated where I hit this interesting fork in the road where I wanted to join the Peace Corps, join the Marine Corps, or teach volleyball at a club med. So just a little bit of context. Um, Sounds like me. (laughs) Yeah. So I did not have like people who say I've got this full life plan. I'm still struggling with those decisions because those are three incredible paths. Right. Um, So I 
I'm uh, I'm vertically challenged. So if you go to UCLA and try to play volleyball, you will be laughed at if you're only 5'8". So I didn't job. play there. I played a lot, but just in more informal circumstances. Um, is there a Rudy of volleyball or is that not? I'm not aware of, and I'm not I'm, good looking. So there won't be a movie <laughs> made of me, um, but it was, but it was fun. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. It was, it was a great time down there. I was interested in Peace Corps intellectually, just that helping servant mentality. Sure. I'd never traveled outside the U.S. And when I went to talk to the Peace Corps, they said, well, we're sending you to Africa. And I'd never been outside the U.S., let alone Africa, but I decided I didn't want to do that. Uh, the teaching of the volleyball was the continuation of the fun I'd had in, co- in college and wasn't really helping. So I decided to join the military. I figured I love, I love my country. I thought naively you could do it for like 24 months. It's like freshman and sophomore year, you know, redux. Same here. Uh, very naive at the time. But I decided I love my country. I want to give back to my country and I want to join the military. So I joined the military. I went to aviation officer candidate school. I got lucky. I ended up flying jets, did that for, I was in for 12 and a half years. VF-102, right? VF-102, <laughs> uh, right. So F-14s cool. operationally. Uh, and then I was an instructor in the Super Hornet, in the F-18 ENF Super Hornet, which was really fun. And then I did a stint over in NATO working with NATO, which was extremely interesting looking at the how the U.S. operates at a military, senior military level internationally and also at a senior political level for foreign policy decisions. That was around the time where Secretary Rumsfeld had thrown down the gauntlet, which we do every five or so years with NATO, which we're doing now, which is NATO, you're not pulling your weight, you need to contribute more. And that challenge had gone out. So NATO was in a much more aggressive posture when I got there in 2000 about deploying outside of the traditional NATO zones uh, that led into some experience in Iraq that I didn't have, but NATO was exploring at the time. And then the foreign policy events I won't go into here, but as Iraq soured around 2005, et cetera, and then I left in 2005, went back to graduate school. I knew I wanted to come back to California and technology, came back to Google. I ran uh, AdWords sales teams for two years. I used to think sales was like a dirty word. Think yeah. like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Same right? Man. Like yeah. always be closing. But when I heard about how Google did consultative sales, it sounded really fun. And I had a really good time doing that. And uh, and then I moved over. Somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, um, there's this thing called YouTube. It's a bunch of like cat videos and stuff. But did you want to come work on that? We need a, a policy and an ops person to, to go do this. And I have my degrees are in policy, public policy, foreign policy, that type of policy work, which I think is interesting. And then also operations, which mm-hmm. is much more metrics driven and rigorous and analytical. And it, the funny thing is at the time, this is 2010, it felt like really risky. Like, wh- why would you move away from the cash cow of Google, which is AdWords, sure. to this video thing, which we haven't really figured out. But I moved over there. A lot of people thought it was a liability at the time, right? They right. thought there was no upside to it. It was a billion plus for the acquisition. Yep. So it was one of the larger ones back in the day. And, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And so I helped grow a lot of the operations, not the technical side, but all the operations around a policy development, policy implementation, global video enforcement, uh, customer service unpaid, which technology companies typically don't have a great reputation for. And then we started doing paid customer support, which raised the bar. We had YouTube Red back in the day where yeah. you actually paid for music and that was a big thing. And um, I'm a subscriber, by the way. Thank to, you. Uh, yeah, YouTube Red. It's um, just the act of being able to get lectures or listen in on things that are going on at conferences right now. I'm always blown away because I want this stuff without ads. I want to be able to close the app on my phone and then listen to it while I'm on the go. And this this is content that's available nowhere else. If you're going to go to some of these conferences, 
2000 bucks, $5,000, $10,000. You can get it for free. So uh, yeah, plug plug right there. Chad, right. Thank you. Yeah. Chad evangelizes for YouTube Red thank all, you. literally yeah, everybody, all the time. A yeah. lot of people hate on it. I'm like, no, this is there's great stuff there. And what are you complaining about $10 a month for yeah. access to this? Yeah, so go ahead. And I think one of the interesting things about it, I think it's rebranded YouTube Premium now, but what I like about it is if you just want a song, you can get that in 10 different places. Like, right. you know, like I want, I don't know, pick a song. But for the real hardcore fans, they want not only a song, but they want the cover done by somebody else. They sure. want the backstage bootlegged things. They want all the context around To hear it. how it was made, exactly. what was the inspiration. And yeah. so that's also, and I don't know if they even pitched that, but that was always interesting to me because you always yeah. see the whole ecosystem around that, that band or, or things like that. And then- Though I had gotten out of the military completely when I was in grad school, I got back into the military through a circuitous route. Because I'm a veteran inside a large tech company, uh, the Department of Defense comes out as they often do for tech tourism. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, the measure of success can sometimes be I got a meeting with somebody and then that's a, that's a win. Even on Silicon Valley, you're just wasted time. Sure. <laughs> so there's a little cultural disconnect there. But I sat in this meeting with some senior DOD officials and some really smart cyber folks. And the conversation was so disturbing to me as a veteran, I'm completely resigned and out, that I decided to kind of try to get back in the game because I'd spent enough time in uniform that I felt I could have a conversation on that side. And I spent enough time in Silicon Valley where I could speak their language. And I liked the ability to try to bridge the two. Right. Um, Which is what we need now. We need that type of mediation and a translator in a sense, right? Right. We called them bridge spanners back in the day. But basically, somebody who could speak both languages and sure. translators. And I think for me personally, that resonated. Uh, I always liked the duality of different things. So when I was in high school, for example, you know, I was a I played violin, which is not always socially like, <laughs> the coolest thing. But I was concertmaster <laughs> the orchestra. But I was also captain of my volleyball team. Right. And so I played volleyball because I love volleyball. And in like Valley, let's just be clear: those are our cool things that parents want their kids to do. I right. think on balance, <laughs> would you right. say? Yeah. yeah. And uh, as long as it gets you into a good school, right? Pretty uh, much. Yeah. So, and I like that duality because those groups didn't tend to have a whole lot of Venn diagram overlap. They were yeah. very like distinct kind of cultures and, and modes of, of, of operating and things like that. And I, then, sorry. I know. I just, uh, I was in Boy Scouts and I played football. So I'm right there with yeah. you. Venn diagram for Boy Scouts and football were pretty much. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> about know, there's a country <laughs> mile between the two. Yeah. It was like me, like both thumbs up, like. Hello, fellow nerds. But anyways. Right. And so I, uh, I'll i just share one more story. So when I was in college, I happened to join a fraternity because they were pretty good at volleyball. But I also was on the student count uh, in student government. And I picked the one office, which was the historically, not intentionally, but I ended up just in the office that was like anti-Greek, like extremely anti-Greek. And you're lucky you made it out. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. the duality again shocked me because, um, and I think that this has broader meaning, but- one day I took somebody from the student government office and I said, you're my friend and you're going to come have lunch with me in my, in my house and just talk, but don't go out of your way. Like don't frost the ties, just talk. And so I brought him over and we sat down and we just had a normal lunch and both sides, like if you take away the titles, you strip away the stereotypes, et cetera, mm-hmm. you can just have a, just a cool, relaxed lunch. And I think I didn't tell either side, well, I told my buddy back in the student affairs office, I'm like, look, he was like, I didn't expect that. I'm like, it's because you're stuck at the stereotype. You can't sure. surpass. Like the, you're missing that human link to even right. the other side and, and vice versa. So I thought that was interesting. And I think 
you run in the same challenge. Uh, so when I left YouTube, I got called back to active duty because that conversation was so bad because DC is stuck in DC things and Silicon Valley is stuck in DC and Silicon Valley things with their own agendas. And they're, they're more patriots than I think people expect in Silicon Valley. Oh, 100%. Yeah. But, but their incentives and their agendas for investments and returns and just, just the environment out here isn't, isn't a place where people talk a lot about things like foreign policy right. and anything outside of like tech or other issues of the day. And it's just, and DC has a different agenda. And so I was trying to be a bridge spanner across that. So I did that for 17 months as a Navy reservist. And then I came back to Google and then joined uh, a thing called, at the time, Project Fi, which has now been rebranded to Google Fi. And so I've been the director of operations and leading operations for for this for the last six months. And yeah. not, so. not many people know about Google Fi on the outside, but I would say inside Google, it's very, very well known. So I would love to hear how you present it to someone who's familiar with Google, but just hasn't heard of Google Fi before. How do you present it? Right, so Google, Google Fi, is a MVNO, a mobile virtual network operator. So think Cricket Wireless or um, a track phone. And it was started inside Google because a group of, and this predated me, so I take no credit for this, but uh, a group of really smart engineers sat around and said, hey, I, a lot of people spend a lot of time on Wi-Fi. Like when you're at home, you've bought your Wi-Fi, so you've already self-optimized for that. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to be on a cellular network for that. And when you're, if you work in an office, you typically have like a guest Wi-Fi or some type of access to Wi-Fi. Right. So why don't we lean into that? And then there are certain times when you're, you know, running in a parking lot to Costco where you won't have any Wi-Fi coverage, so you need cell phone coverage. So why don't we use some smart switching technology and see if that makes it better for the user? And so Google Fi is a, a phone service, just like a Verizon or an AT&T, where it's uh, Wi-Fi first, but it smartly switches between T-Mobile and U.S. Cellular and Sprint and Wi-Fi, and it uses a, switch, a switching algorithm to switch you through that. Um, and so we've this is available spectrum on each of these networks that they've like pre-sold or that you have a partnership with them. Or? Exactly. Okay, it, gotcha. it's a, the the V and MVNO MNOs own their spectrum and their towers and gotcha. And, and then and MVNOs basically buy the whole wholesale. And then provide gotcha. a, a separate service okay, that, cool. that people pay for. And so we did it just because we thought that would be a better experience for, for users. And as most ideas inside Google, even things like Gmail, started off pretty small. And it really got a lot of traction. And people really, really liked it. And they liked a couple things. They liked the fact that you could smartly switch. They liked our transparent pricing, which is $20 a month for unlimited talk and text, and then $10 a gig. But if you don't use the gig, we don't charge you for, for the gig. And then if you go over six gigs, then we, we cover you. And if you're like a power user streaming 4K 24-7, we'll have to throttle you just like all the other sure. folks do. So that's pretty much industry standard. But it's it's very easy to see. The UI is very straightforward. And you just basically pay for what you use. And it a lot of people really, really like that. So it's it's flexible, it's transparent, and it's it's efficient, if you will. And, and then that, the other- That's amazing. Sorry. Just real quick. This yeah. is, it's amazing that the team has already been able to get the price down that low. Because usually this is something that takes, what, a decade of optimization before you can get to competitive consumer pricing in the telecom or in the in this industry? Or am I off base here? Is the pricing not? It's a tough industry. Yeah. Let's put it that way. And there's, sure. there's there are four big players who are at the top of the, right. the mountain, if you will, way up there. And then there's a lot of smaller, smaller players. Like mm-hmm. one, one study had 60 MBNOs like us 
and we're all much much smaller scale than they are. Gotcha. Um, so there, it's the economics are different. On economics are different for everybody. So I can't speak for other folks. I, sure. I think we have been pleasantly surprised with the fact that users have really really liked it, and that's why we've grown internally. And the other th- user benefit that manifested itself was international usage. So I was with another carrier for eleven years, a solid user of a, another service I won't mention. But it was a very high dollar service. You paid a premium for just about everything. And even traveling overseas with that carrier was cumbersome. I had mm. to call them. I had to try to change plans and oh, charge me more. And then I'd be charged really high overseas rates. Yeah. In addition to that, it was very, very expensive. And the, the, what we feel is a good, a good thing about uh, Google Fi is that when you get off the plane, you take it off airplane mode. You just use it like you would on your couch mm. or wherever you are. It's, just, it's the same experience in over 200 countries now. Wow. Uh, so it's, it's, it just works or that's aspirationally it just works. That's, that's what you're looking for. Sure. So, so th- that's Google Fi in a nutshell, you know, it started small and we've got a lot of internal support for it. And last fall we did a, a big promotion to announce the fact that we've graduated from, it was originally project Fi mm-hmm. and it had, you know, fluffy pastel colors and things like that. And we moved to the official Google brand and logo, et cetera, as part of our graduation. And so we're very proud of that. We also, we started on a couple Android devices and we got immediate user feedback that they love the service, but they wanted more devices. So we've been methodically trying to grow the device suite that we offer. And so we sure. offer it. And then last fall as well, we expanded it to many more Android devices mm-hmm. as well as iOS. So we now have gotcha. the capability in iOS platform. And again, and we feel like that's a good foothold to continue to build on the user experience to make it great for every Fi user. Definitely. And you can't just ignore the I- iOS ecosystem. It's just too too good and too big. So De- you have to yeah, sure. play. And then, Do you know where I first heard about um, Project Fi or Google Fi? I don't. I was going to guess. But- Our head of growth, Dylan, has been a user for a long time. I, I don't know how long, but at least... I mean, I don't know, a year ago, something like that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. he was. I think he was talking about that. Uh, yeah, a while ago. Yeah, because I I called uh, I called him at one point, and it and it said, you know, whatever the the thing is, like this Google Fi user is. I forget what the what it says, but um, Dylan is our head of growth, along with he's basically like a acting CIO who's always like vetting new tech kind of for us. Cool. So. Yeah, yeah, he's an early adopter of everything. He's like first to all tech. That's amazing. And so I was like, as soon as he said that, I was like, perked my little ears up. And I was like, wait a second, what has Ben up to? And it's like, wait a second, put two and two together. Anywho. Nice. Yeah, so let's talk about about that graduation for a second, because at Google, it's easy to think like from the outside to look in and say, oh, you know, Google has so many resources and starting a new business unit like this is easy. Uh, It's really, really difficult for any company, but your graduation, I think that signifies Google viewing this as not a project, but a potentially massive business unit. Is that safe to say, or it is a big vindication for the, it's not a project anymore, right? Right. I think that's, that's a fair assessment, a massive investment. I, I personally, I'm not sure that that's the way it's going to go. I think, so let me give a little bit of context. When I, so I started at YouTube, a lot of people in Silicon Valley, everybody knows that Google bought YouTube. Sure, but but outside of Silicon Valley or anybody who's tech centric, nobody like especially internationally, mm. everyone does not associate the two. Right? Sure, it's and, like WhatsApp and Facebook, right? Exactly, it's still yeah. T- yeah. And so that. when you tell them you work at Google, they assume that you've got you have access to the checkbook that's got the 150 billion dollars in cash in it, which is absolutely not the case at all. Sure, right? 
our CFO controls the purse strings to that. So yes, we have been uh, we have been graduated, which is an amazing feat for the team. We're very, very happy, but we do consider ourselves truly a scrappy startup inside of a bigger ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And what's fun about it is it's a complicated market. It's a saturated US mobile market. Right? The growth is about 1% year on year at best. Mm. Cell phones have pretty much penetrated everywhere they're going to penetrate in the US. And it's, so it's a very, it's not a growth market. The it's not grab a piece of the pie and everybody wins. Sure. It, it's how do you provide a better service t- to users so that you can attract them to come to you. Right. So it's a, it's a fun, it's a very complicated problem to, and it's fun to do it. And it's fun to do it inside the Google ecosystem. But I can safely say our playbook's not going to mirror one of the big four's playbooks for how we're going to get there. Right. So we're going to have to be more creative, more scrappy, more intuitive, and more forward thinking for what users need this year, next year, and the next five years in a way that's going to help us continue to grow, if that makes sense. Definitely. And are there any markets in particular that your team or you are most excited about, whether they're in the US or abroad? Are there any markets where because of maybe like unique circumstances with the telcos or something like that, that your team is focused on right now? Yeah, I think it's easy to think, oh, we should just go international, like right. it's a linear scaling. It, it my perception is that it's really hard to go into different markets. Mm-hmm. So we're not in any time in the near future going to go international. We have enough short-term opportunities to make things better for users in the US market, irrespective of what I just said, that we've got plenty, more than enough stuff on our plate now right. for the next couple of years for us to continue to optimize the experience for, for Google users. So we're, we are focused on the US for now. And there may be some future state where we will look internationally, but we're not looking there right now. Gotcha. So- what about types of people? Like I would imagine like the uh, like travelers, like frequent travelers, the wanderlust community. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like that would just be like if you're a frequent world traveler and you're spending, you know, months at a time abroad every year, it seems like that would be just such an obvious because that's a, it's a huge pain point. I just came back from Australia and the well, I just didn't use my phone for a week, which was pretty awesome. <laughs> good, like, good for the well-being. Right? <laughs> I was like, this is great. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it seems like those there are communities or pockets of people that would be total power users of this that right. don't necessarily know about it yet. Yeah. Yes. I think we actually, not to make a sales pitch here, but we do have a director of marketing role open for Google oh, awesome. Fi. So if you happen, if anybody out there happens to know an amazingly smart marketer yeah. who would love to be in the Google ecosystem and- um, No, pitch away. Like, so, yeah, who, who are so, you looking for and why? That's- uh, we're looking, so we're looking for a very savvy marketer who hopefully knows something about telco or can learn very quickly about the telco space because that's our milieu. Sure. They've got to be a good team player. Google culture, I think, is one of the things I think, I think Google is the best company I know I've ever worked for and possibly ever. And I've been there 11 years, so I've had ups and downs and not, it's not that I'm a new hire and I'm still in the honeymoon and I drink the Kool-Aid. Like I've been there for 11 years now, so I've yeah. seen all the boils and warts and pimples and all that stuff and who knows what's coming down the road, but you got to be a team player. So mm-hmm. no sharp elbows. You got to be thinking about something bigger than yourself. One thing I think is cool about Google is that everybody knows the mission, regardless of how closely or how directly you tie to it. Everybody knows that. Mm. And I just find that unique. And that reminds me of that similar ethos in the military where everybody's working for the unit. Right. And and Google has a lot of similarities in that respect. So you got to be a great team player. You got to be smart marketer. If you know something about telco, that's a bonus. And then 
I think Google has done an amazing job building an amazing brand. And the Google brand, as you look at all of the surveys and studies, is up there, at least in the top five oh, of, 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 yeah. go, of global brands. So you don't get the luxury of starting off with a no-name brand that nobody knows about that you can do some really crazy guerrilla marketing things to do something way off the wall. Mm. So there are some constraints, but up to those bounds, how aggressively can you create fun, creative marketing moments and narratives in an amazing way within those constraints to help us grow? Sure. If that makes sense. When you say everyone at Google knows the mission, do you mean mission.org or do you mean the broader Google because mission? They yeah, because they do. Because they do. Let's, let's be honest. There's a lot it's of It's a people. footnote in the Google mission. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I want to I just touch on this a little bit because I think our amazing co-founder, Stephanie, who recently worked at Google, I think you know she's one of the people that when I talked to about her working at Google kind of opened my eyes to a lot of the things that happened behind the scenes, but she didn't come from a background that I think a lot of people would traditionally associate with someone that could just step in and and be at Google. And I think there's kind of this like aura around like, oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I couldn't work there. Like there's no way they'd hire me sort of thing. And I think that, you know, no matter how kind of weird your background is, I think that that's one of the things about Google that is so cool is like, nobody cares about how weird your background is. It's like, are you a team player? Do you get results? Are you, you know, a super high performer? And that, that's just one of the things that I think is cool that there are roles out there within such a big company that are those kind of startup y roles that have this high upside, but also just kind of same fun atmosphere and all that. Yeah, Google's success is uh, is not accident. And it's, uh, I mean, it's not accidental. It's not, they, they didn't just get lucky. Uh, I think that's way too much of a gross simplification. But if you look at the people they hire and how they hire, I think this is fascinating. So do they still have the thing where they talk about smart creatives? A lot, or I know Eric Schmidt had this in his book, and for a while it was the uh, phrase how they referred to the type of candidates they were recruiting. Basically, do they still talk like that, or or use that phrase? So a lot? I, I don't work in our people ops organization, <laughs> yeah. so officially I can't say anything. I think in general we look for basically a smart, general intellectual athlete that's mm-hmm. a good team player, and and can exhibit leadership when you when you need to. I think that's really. So I hadn't heard smart creative before, but that makes sense. I've yeah. heard things like intellectual thoroughbred, like a jack of all trades. I think there is the belief that if if you're smart enough to get in there, you can figure it out sure. and, yeah. and kind of make things better. And um, um, just a side note too, about uh, Steph getting her role there. I always think it's fascinating. They didn't ask what school she went to. That was never part of the discussion. GPA didn't matter. They still do that sometimes and that's fine. But what they focused in on was they went in depth through all of her side projects that they took them all incredibly seriously. Right. That was where they spent the most time. And I think that that is the root of you can't have a big company anymore unless you're incubating dozens of startup ideas, new business right. units, things like that. And you're never going to have those be successful until you have people that come in that have built things on their own before or with other people or that have a truly diverse background. So right. I would love to talk more about your diverse background, Ben, because you have you know, you're a senior fellow at CNAS, if you can share any about that, or maybe some of your time at uh, DIUX. I think that would be fascinating for our listeners. Uh, so let me, maybe I'll start with DIUX. So yeah. um, as I mentioned, I'd gotten out of the military, I'd gotten back into the Navy Reserves as an inactive, an inactive role. So it's a very low level commitment. It's keep one uniform in your closet and do an annual muster and then 
do points to have a good year for retirement. And the reason why I did that is I left at 12 and a half years. And when you get to 20, you get a, a pretty good retirement. Mm -hmm. And it depends on whether you leave directly from active duty or not, but still it's healthcare for you and your family sure. and a stipend and basically a pension. So when I did, when I did the math, I thought that was worth it. So sure. that's why I got back in principally. But then, as I mentioned, I, I heard this conversation between DOD officials and Silicon Valley cyber people. And I became really, really concerned. And I got to a place where I was supporting what was a small group of people working at the time for U.S. Cyber Command under Admiral Rogers. We basically were the did the things that DIUX does now on a much larger scale. So we were trying to find technologies in Silicon Valley in the cyber realm, just mm -hmm. restricted to that one vector, and then get them over to folks at Cybercom to evaluate how good they were or not. Mm. And initially it was just, I wanted people back at the fort to see what the art of the possible, and no, this is me, but the team, right. wanted just to show what the art of the possible was yeah. so they could have it as a data point right. in whatever they were doing. But pretty quickly we realized that, and it was really based on every person that I've ever met in the military has the story where the government issued thing they got. Yep. They could have gone down to Walmart with their own credit card and gotten a thing that was twice as better, uh, twice as good or something like that. And so- The my, same price or less. Right. So my, my story is back in the F-14 days where we had the inertial navigation system built in the F-14, I think back in the 60s. I mean, literally that was back in the cathode ray tube days of TVs. At the time, it was like bleeding edge, like mm -hmm. driverless cars are today. And uh, it had drift in the system. So the inertial navigation system would drift pretty badly sometimes. And for a while, F-14, this is late 90s, we'd do our missions and the aircraft carrier would like be up in a corner of the Gulf and you'd be ready to come down the stack at night to your landing and you drift and you'd overfly unintentionally uh, somebody else's airspace. And then they would get mad and they would call over to the US and the DOD would hear it. And, call, and so you have to go stand tall in front of the air wing commander and, and he would say, why did you fly over the piece of dirt out there? And he said, because that's what the INS told me to do. And so eventually we got to the point where you could literally run down to Circuit City at the time by a $300 Garmin and a one inch piece of, piece of Velcro bring it with you, slap it on there in your dashboard, and you'd never have an overflight violation again. Huh. And so eventually the military machine caught up with things like GPS and got a, found a way to put GPS in the jet, et cetera, but mm -hmm. it took years. And the former managing director of DIOX, a guy named Raj Shah, was an F-16 guard guy who also, when he deployed, didn't have a movie map in his F-16. So he took his iPad, his personal iPad, called up Google Maps and, and navigated off Google Maps on his iPad. So we do have the most amazing military in the world, but the way we procure technology makes a lot of sense for certain things. Sure. And for other things, it just doesn't make as much sense. Right. And so that's where DIUX really tried to fill the gap of finding rapid ways of getting technology prototypes in the hands of the users with flexible milestones such that you don't have to commit to a billion dollar 10 year contract. Right. You do a, a six month milestones. And if the thing fails at milestone three, Everybody walks away and everyone's smarter for it. And you didn't short the company. The company right. got their paid due to their milestones and and you move on. So there's a, there's a lot of things that I think are really powerful for DIUX as an idea, or now it's now been rebranded DIU. But culture change in the Pentagon, given its set of incentives and its history, is just really hard. It's it's not a it's not a place to experiment with new cultural things right. or because people's lives are on the line. Completely. Quite, quite you can't do it. Yeah. But 
but at the same time. Well, and this is a good yeah. side note to talk about the fact that a lot of the you know systems that are hard to change, we can grow frustrated by them, but there is inherent wisdom in that system that we can't necessarily see. So it's important to not like disrupt everything at once, but to make these small pilot tests in a sense, like perfect that right. before you try to tackle cost plus accounting as a whole or whatever the case is. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I and mean, SOPs are written in blood in the military, yeah, right? For some a of them, Some of them are. Yeah. Uh, especially things as you get towards the forward line and, and the deployed folks. Yeah. And so you would change those only very smartly. But there are other things that are just, quite frankly, just like we have technical debt in Silicon Valley. Sure. This is bureaucratic debt. People aren't incentivized to take risk mm -hmm. outside of the operational context. And I think that's one of the greatest challenges is how do you reward intelligent risk taking? Yeah. In the military. Now I'm, I'm retired, so I don't have any, I mean, other than I'm still a gray area retiree. So I'm sure there's a way DOD could reach out and touch me, but the GRM, or the GMT training, the general military training, everybody does, right? You talk about ORM, operational risk management. Kind of the first sentence is the, the first true false question that even the 18 year old grunt knows, right? To call it the high school graduate is ORM, true false is designed to reduce all risk, remove all risk. It's false, right? So there's got to be, even at the 18-year-old level, there's a sense of uh, risk analysis you need to do as a smart sailor or a Marine or sure. a soldier or airman. And, uh, risk and, mitigation is everyone's responsibility. Yeah, it's and just like intelligent risk home. management. Take yeah. intelligent risks, right? And so in the operational construct, everybody gets it. But then in the other parts of the, of the organization, people don't get that. And I think that's the challenge is how is the Department of Defense going to reward those forward thinkers who yeah. took risks where it didn't work out? I've... Again, and I can't speak for the entire Department of Defense, but I have now spent 20 years in collectively and I just retired. I have never seen anything innovative happen without top cover hmm. from the CO, the unit commander, the squad leader who just looked at that and prima facie, that's such an obviously good idea. It may not be maybe against a reg or something, but mm. in this situation, it's just Let's do, do it. it. Yeah. And I got your back if, if you don't. And to wit, now, DIUX, when it was created, had to report into the Secretary of Defense. That's the ultimate top cover in the DOD to not get ground up in the machine, in the cogs of the machine. So how do you do culture change? I mean, if somebody can crack the culture change at the Department of Defense in this area, that's the one panacea. Like if, so People always ask, like, well, what's the silver bullet to mm. fix DOD? First of all, DOD doesn't need fixing. It's an amazing, you know, our troops are amazing people. It's the best military in the world, you know, hands down. It's ever existed with 3 million people, I think, or right. part of the DOD. So that's a, that's a miracle. The fact that 3 million people can accomplish anything together. Right. So, but, but, a, but if there's the closest thing I can think to a silver bullet is to induce a smart culture change to allow things to fail mm -hmm. more quickly and rapidly and have, and, and have that intelligent risk-taking in other parts outside of, you know, when I get in my F-14, I have to make on-the-fly decisions and I take risks every day sure. or F-18 in that context. And I, that would be a huge, huge win for the well, Department of Defense. Yeah, definitely. I want to share two quick anecdotes with this. So there's a great story of, I think it was like a private or specialist or something in a Humvee <clears throat> was sitting in the gun turret in like early Iraq. And what they started doing was putting like sandbags around the turret and like pieces of wood and pieces of rock and stuff like that. And a general saw it's like, that's not SOP. Like, what are you guys doing? You're like, well, we keep getting shot at. So like this little, <laughs> this little thing of sandbags like protects that. And the general like saw that immediately was like, we need to build 
protected turrets, like armored turrets around around the Humvees. And it was like instantaneous, hey, we saw it, we got to fix this. And then they like outfitted, you know, fleets of Humvees with this stuff. Again, that's in combat, people's lives at stake, stuff like that. Conversely, I was in like human resources operations and we had like black screen, single cursor stuff from like 1992 type technology to track, you know, enlisted soldiers, like where they go, you know, across uh, the different units. They spent a huge amount of money with, I forget who it was. And it was like a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And this bet that they made was so that, hey, if we have this like human resources technology, we can take a bunch of these human resource professionals and like reduce the need on so many people so that we could have like more people actually fighting. They never delivered. Yeah. That type of thing is like, you could just roll out any HR software from any startup anywhere in the valley. It's probably going to be better. Immediately. And it would be better. And yet, you know, and I don't know what they're using now, but it's probably the same stuff. Like that's the sort of stuff that you're saying. It's like on the battlefield, we're going to adjust. And now we have things like DIU where you have scouts sitting in the valley from the different services looking at technologies, trying to shorten the gap that right. we could actually implement. So there are signs that the winds are changing. So Softworks has been around for a while, which is special operations. It's down in Tampa. And they basically go out and find new technologies and find a way to integrate them in, in the special operations construct. So they've had a lot of good success. Secretary Gertz, I think he's a, he's now the chief Navy acquisitions guy. His call sign, I think, is Hondo. He used to run Softworks, so he's got deep experience in that, which is great. So having him as a senior acquisition official mm-hmm. who's smart in this world is super helpful. Yeah, um, There's a guy named Dr. Roper on the Air Force side who's also of similar mind. And the Air Force has Afworks, which okay. was modeled off Softworks, and they're trying to do something similar. And to your point, the deck plate innovation happens because that's the perfect marriage of incentive and need. Yeah. So Marines and sailors and airmen and soldiers, the 18-year-old kids come up with really, really, really wicked smart solutions. The challenge is to get them back into the machine yep. in mm-hmm. a way that makes sense. So for example, in the, I'll use an F-14 example, you have um, three stability augmentation switches. And the the middle one was the roll SAS switch. And so for landing and you know, flying around, it was great to have. It did a little you know additional dampening, standard stuff. But when you're dogfighting, you did not want that thing on. Um, And the problem is it's a switch. It's not super ergonomically designed, so you have to look down. So some smart 18-year-old figured out, just put a little piece of shrink wrap, like two inches, and just shrink wrap it on. And so now, even when you have the glove on, you just flip down there and you flip the switch, right? So we just started doing that in our squadron. But of course, as soon as the maintenance officer, it's not according to SOP and that's that's fought in the cockpit, that thing can come off and it could jam a control and you could lose an F-14 and people died and it hit the front page. And like the chances of that are so remote and it provides such an obvious benefit. But to actually get that through the official chain, I don't know if it ever actually made it through the chain because right. they, designed, they redesigned the system a couple of years later where they just redesigned it and that became moot. But that that's the challenge that you yeah. have, which is it's so, it makes obvious sense. You should do it, but to actually get it approved through the formal chain to go through testing because you have to take it back into the testing world right? and, and go it, through all, all that stuff. It's, it's like just, taping your magazines together. That was another <laughs> thing, like yeah. taping them together so you could just turn one around and flip it. Yeah, stuff like that where you're like, not approved, not authorized. Well, I think the challenge then becomes how do we 
get the incentive and the feelings and the reasons that the person who is right in front of that situation, how do we take those and pass them up the chain or right. ensure that they pass go up the chain, right? Because we, uh, for our book club, we did a book called uh, Skin in the Game, which basically the whole book is about how do you solve this challenge? Because certain people have different amounts of skin in the game. Certain right. people are physically risking their lives in combat now. And we have a situation where the military support is, uh, is growing, it's expanding, and that's great. But they don't have the same incentives as the people on, on the ground or the pilots do. Right. So yeah, any ideas? How do we, how do we translate that well, mentality I, of there are people, we need to value their decisions maybe a bit more than some of the senior people who are out of harm's way? So I think the, the first fatal thing a CEO in Silicon, and I'm not a CEO, but like any leader in Silicon Valley can do is lose touch with your user. Right. And so, and I know for a while it was a fad that CEOs would jump in like the forums and like do, you know, like just engage directly with users, et cetera. But like any company, the further away you get from what your user actually needs, the more at risk you are. Right. I'd be hard pressed to find an organization where some of the buying decisions on the back end are made thousands of miles away from the user. Yeah. And I think one of the great things that DIUX did by a guy named Colonel Enrique Odi was he went to a KOC and looked at the software they were using in the KOC mm-hmm. and said, this is just crazy. Like this is supposed to be the brains of the air operation in a very complicated area where people are at risk and people are dying and being killed. And literally a couple Silicon Valley engineers could solve this stuff like over a weekend. Like totally. the coding yep. complexity is not hard at all. He did something which happened at light speed for military or government bureaucracy speed, where he found a team of some military, but some civilian off the street, non-military coders, and literally forced them into the chaos hmm. and said, sit with the users and figure out how to make it better. And they immediately rolled out a thing. We call it Kessel, well, they, DIUX calls it Kessel Run, and- the idea was just get smart coders in a room, let them build, if you're using software code, let them build code to solve your problems and have right. an iterative process. And Kessel Run, I think, is one of the marquee achievements that Enrique pushed through against all the usual headwinds you'd expect. Sure. Uncleared non-military coding people sitting in a highly classified environment, even though they're working on things like a tanker plan. Like something classified about doing simple math around tanking plans. Sure. And so to his credit, and to quite frankly, as, and I hate to say this as a Navy guy, but to the Air Force's credit, they fully embraced <laughs> this idea of having an agile coding team to solve problems. Right. Um, not that it's permeated all the Air Force as far as I can tell, but my understanding is that the Air Force has stood up a Boston-based group of dedicated coders to do exactly that. Any company would do this in a heartbeat. And so sure. I think that's that's the lesson is do you know what you're... Like, have you ever met one of your users? And not when you did the job 18 years ago, but right. like today. Today, yeah. Like if you're building a piece of software for, I don't know, like a Humvee interface. Yeah. Have you actually sat in a Humvee yesterday This is and looked at it? Yeah. Such um, an important reminder and story. I don't know if you are you were going to tell this story, but I, I got to just insert it really on. quickly. So we were using a uh, software product to solve some of the audio challenges that we were facing. And this audio product is really technical. And as we're using it, we're exchanging emails with the support staff. And we're like, wait a minute, who is this person we're talking to? 
and it's uh, Andrew Mason, the, the billionaire, is he created a new product. And sure enough, he's actually answering support emails. It's not an like it's not an accident that this is a common thread from successful CEOs that you're talking about. Like many of them, even after they've made their money or had a successful exit uh, and they're doing something new, they're in the trenches answering support emails all day long because that's where the good stuff uh, well, is. Yeah, I mean, the the advice that, um, I, and I forget who says this, but you know, a CEO should spend 33% of their time with customers. And it's like, if you're yeah. if you're a user-facing thing, you, you need to be doing that, otherwise you're gonna lose touch. One of the CIOs or CTOs that I interviewed for IT Visionaries, we were talking about like the rise of mobile and all the stuff. And they were like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even need a desktop anymore. I just do everything on my phone. And I was thinking, I was like, that's such a leader thing because yeah, of course you're a C-level executive. You're not making spreadsheets. You're not doing a, you know, you're not making slides. You're not doing anything like that. Of course you don't need anything more than your phone. And that's like one of those things where, you forget sometimes if you're not sitting with the team and watching them do those things, like you're not even using the same device anymore as the people that are working for you. Right. Yeah, yep, definitely. And most importantly, so I, it's funny you mentioned that because I've been spending a lot, a fair bit of time in customer experience and user experience conferences now that I'm back in the private sector and just trying to get my feet wet again yeah. in that environment. And so there's, there's a, definitely a theme these days about you serve your users that we just talked about, but you also serve your frontline employees as well. And they're they're also your customers in a way sure. when you're in the, in, yeah. in management because you give them you give them the tools right and, and I, just, I think you actually have two two sets of demographics you need to meet yeah there. definitely yeah. Eric Reese who wrote Lean Startup says that like if you were to basically like score an organization on like a, give them like an innovation score that it would be the speed that an idea can get from the least tenured employee to the CEO. And then like actually implement something back right. down uh, and like give feedback on that idea. Like I always, I think that's so fascinating. How do you as a company structure channels so that ideas can flow top to bottom really fast? And that's one of the things that the military again does rank structure. All of this stuff has been around a long time. It's super important when you're outside of it and you're doing other things. You're like, man, I really appreciate the rank structure that we had in the military for a lot of reasons, but the downside of that yeah. is the exact, you know, there's-, there's Information slows. Yeah. Of, yeah. Ben, what's what can you share with us about the Center for a New American Security and your work there? So Center for New American Security came on my radar back when, just after it was created as a bipartisan think tank. And there's a lot of think tanks in DC, et cetera. And there's a set of reasons why I came to become aware of it, but I've always been impressed with the intellectual rigor with which they've approached things. I've worked with other organizations in the past where politics is this world, especially in the current environment, it's bipolar. Like you have to gravitate to one of the poles. Right. There is very precious few people that are in the middle of the road these days. Like everyone kind of has dumped off to a pole and what I liked about Center for New American Security is they were much more to the middle than other things I'd been interacting with in sure. the past. So it's a it's a fairly new role for me, so I don't have much to report, but I've been very impressed with the organization overall with with what they've been doing. Cool. What's the organization's mi mission or how, how would you sum up what your work is uh, trying to accomplish or facilitate? Well, they're, they're working on a whole host of really interesting topics and they're really some of the toughest topics that we have to deal with. And- Everything from how how robots will 
be implemented in a military context. And a lot of ethical questions around things like, for example, one which Silicon Valley's aware of has been discussing is the role of AI in in the military context. Is that bad at its face and so therefore should never happen or not? Things like that. The rise of of how we want to handle China as a Mm -hmm. military power and international partner is really complicated. So they're tackling things. I mean, there's a whole litany of things that they're doing that that are really great, but they're, in my mind, they're the most important questions and they're, they're approaching it from, from a balanced way to hopefully advance the conversation. Very cool. So I'm excited to be part of it. As we move towards the end of the interview here, we have a uh, lightning round. We always like to try to fit in. Uh, So if you're ready, let's jump into it. Let her up. Favorite nonfiction or fiction book you've read in the last couple of years and why? Sapiens. Okay. Uh, almost done. Just a really good kind of intellectual deep dive into t- it's It's funny. It's like, take the big view. Mm-hmm. We don't have time to go into it now, but have you heard of the retirement speech exercise? No. Like at the end of your career, it, it's a way to get people who are really hyper-focused on a short time frame. Like I need to get promoted in the next 12 months to get them to take the long view, which is something Americans aren't typically good at. But the the JV version of this is is to do a creative writing exercise called like, retirement speech. So imagine gotcha. a peer or your boss gets up and says, um, you know, hey, Chad had a 40-year career here. Here's what he did well. Here's what he didn't do well. You know, like just do a creative writing exercise for what you want to get out of that I love length it. of time. Yeah. I actually like a little bit, a more advanced version is the obituary because it's more holistic and gets more about like the happiness quotient is what you should be optimizing for, not just your income or your professional achievements. Sure. It's not quite complete in my personal opinion. So the obituary is, this is your best friend getting up and speaking at your funeral. Right. So when you're dead, what good things that you're proud, that you want to be proud of. And again, it's a creative writing exercise, but it gets people to take the long view. Sure. And I think this is something similar to that. On one of our uh-huh. early episodes, we had Ellen, one of our guests was talking about this idea that it's hard to connect the dots when you haven't made all the dots yet. Like early in your career, you're just making the different dots. And then at the end, you're like, oh, well, that's the path, obviously. But so many people are worried about kind of like the destination, connecting all the dots and figuring out where they're supposed to go. And when it's like, you haven't you haven't made that stuff yet. Yeah, I think the people who, who wake up out of bed one day and say, I'm going to be the best CMO ever is exceedingly rare. Right. I think yeah. people are just dealing with life and trying to kind of, work their way through life. And so I, I, I'm not, as long as you're trying to do something, it's yeah. actually, even if it works out horribly and you hate it, you're you're smarter for knowing it. You don't need to look in that direction again. Definitely. And you, if you knew exactly what was going to happen, it wasn't going to, it's not going to be exciting. So right. what's, yeah, what's the point? Um, you just, you just okay. wanted to wake up and uh, nail the violence, not a number nine and have a killer jump surf, you know, and yeah. here you are. <laughs> I would have been pretty happy with that. I, I can't, the Southern California is good living down there. Trust I've been, me. I've been waiting on that joke for about 30 minutes. <laughs> You've been sitting on that. That was yeah. a good one. You've been really, holding out. I really have. Ben, what's, what are you doing outside of work? Are you still playing volleyball or anything? Are you uh, making time for friends? How well, are got, you I unplugging? Kids. Yeah. So kids take up all, all of my time. I'm, I'm coaching Little League Baseball right now. Okay. We're, we're in Farm League. My six-year-old is is uh, is cranking away at uh, Coach Pitch. Um, my eight-year-old's also in Little League. So it's mostly kids. I also do sit on the San Mateo County Veterans Commission. Oh, cool. I just came in for a meeting last night. I, I do feel... I think everyone wants to serve. And then when you leave out of uniform, there's still that itch of you want to sure. do something yeah. to kind of help help out, I think. And this was, a, uh, I had the opportunity to join this commission 
And, you know, we're working on solving the unmet needs of the veterans in, in my local community. And there's a surprising lot of nuance around it. And it's a pretty hard challenge. We've got a whole, you know, we've got folks back from Vietnam all the way up to folks just getting off active duty service. And how do you reach out to them? And how do you let them know? I mean, I think that the fact that a GI Bill isn't 100% utilized by everyone in the service, I think is a, is a tragedy slash travesty. Agreed. And so- you know, there's opioid issues and mental health issues and suicide and getting a job. And, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time advising folks on how to get into technology. And that, that's a continual battle. Um, yeah. Trying to decode the military resume in a way that a person who's never known anything about the military can understand and properly value what yep. you've done is a, is, a, is a hard challenge as well. So that's, that's where I'm spending any extra time I have. Cool. And uh, what's some of the uh, best and worst business advice that you've ever received? So I think the worst business advice was take care of yourself and then you'll be in a position to help other people. Yeah. Um, the airplane the, the airplane analogy, you got to put your mask on before you help everybody else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's short-sighted. And the one interesting thing I will note is having interviewed folks now here for coming into, into my company there's a cultural, again, it goes back to incentives and mm -hmm. humans respond to incentives. So if you grow up in an environment where you need to get straight A's and you may or may not play sports, but if you do, they tend to be individual sports so that you can stand out as the, nothing against tennis, but like the captain of the tennis team. Sure. You, you end up in a situation where one of my favorite interview questions is, when have you taken one for the team? And what Great I mean question. is, is not like, you guys stayed up extra late and you lost sleep to get A on your paper as a group paper exercise. But like when you've paid a personal price, yeah. either in reputation or something else to make sure the team actually won. Mm -hmm. So almost a self-sacrifice question. That trips up a surprisingly lot of people mm -hmm. because they've been raised, and I got stereotyping here, but um, it, it surprises me how many people have trouble answering that type of question. That's um, great. That's, That's a really, really good, good question. Yeah. We'll have to remember that. We should, I know, we should that. ask that in our interview. Well, we should ask that for mission, but also we should ask that in future interviews. For sure. What's a good interview question that you use? Yeah. And then, so I think the other thing, and this again, goes back a little bit to the military is I found myself actually after 17 months saying, oh, this is, all these problems seem hard and they're hard to fix, but oh, that's somebody else's problem. Even yeah. if it did affect you or your team. And just my own personal experience in the military was easier just to say, well, I just, I won't think about that. I won't worry about that. Unless it really, def like if I couldn't get gas in my F-14, that was a problem. I'd have to solve that problem. Right. But otherwise I would just kind of let it go. And I think that that is horrible advice if you're trying to be a good teammate and a good manager who can let the buck stop with you and try to solve other problems. I think for best business advice, there's no passing the buck. Like yeah. you got to own it from top down and bottom up. And like, Senior leaders make decisions that aren't always transparent because they can't share the data behind the decisions, but they at a minimum need to communicate to their management team, like the middle layer, with enough clarity what's going on or read right. them in smartly and trust them, you know, trust them to message that intelligently. And then also giving the feedback up, like you got to be able to do it smartly both ways. Otherwise you're on, you should go do something else. And then finally, I think staying on message. Yeah. Um, I've seen because things change so quickly, especially mm -hmm. in the private sector and in, in my experience in technology, it's easy to kind of keep pivoting your messaging. Right. And I think you can kind of leave the team behind. They'll, they'll miss some of the jumps. And so really staying on message, I think is, it's a marketing one-on-one -on -one thing, but I think that really, really helps. 
I love it. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a blast. And uh, yeah, looking forward to getting this interview out. Thanks for having me. Yeah, check out fi.google.com. All right, see everyone next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.